Good evening. This is Cinema 60. What I think we've come to and what I think the tragedy of Vietnam clearly demonstrates is that we now find ourselves in a world in which the arrangements of power cannot yet be ignored, but in which the instruments of power no longer work. This, if this lesson has been taught us in Vietnam, then the stubborn little guerrillas out there who sawed off the American giant at the knees and brought him down, almost like David versus Goliath, will have done a great service not only to their own cause, whatever one may think about it, but perhaps to the cause of world peace, and perhaps most particularly to the Colossus himself. Maybe we needed to be brought up short. Maybe what we've been doing in Vietnam all along is an exercise in what Senator Fulbright has called the arrogance of power. Hello, Bart. Hi, Jenna. How are you on this fine morn evening, um, non-specific time of day for whatever our listener is experiencing? 8.15 p.m., though. That's your time. You want to do everything at 8.15 p.m. 8.15 p.m. a.m.? Yeah. So good morning, folks. Today we're talking about documentaries. Documentaries. You know, this is not, I don't think either of us is a documentary guy. You are more than I am. And I don't really I think so. That's, I see that's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I see in your feed that you're watching current documentaries sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I, I always I feel really out of the loop when it with documentaries like I will watch them. It has a lot more to do with whether or not I'm actually interested in the topic, which is usually not the way to watch documentaries you know what i mean like i should be if i was really into documentaries i'd be watching them for the love of documentaries and the love of discovery the same way that i watch movies and i'm still in that phase of documentary watching where i'm seeking out the stuff that that only interests me yeah that's really what i watch the documentaries i watch i don't watch them to enjoy as movies i watch them because i'm a fan of the band that they're about or you know, I'm just interested in the subject. Right. Um, and I don't, I mean, that's sort of my limited view of cinema. Like I still, even, you know, difficult European films from the 60s that would be a torture for most people to watch. Like I still see those as like dream factory movies where you're, you're whisked off to another place and you experience things that you could, couldn't experience in your own life. And I just, documentaries, you know, I try and watch them that way sometimes, but they just don't, it's not the same experience for me. I have to watch them in a very different way than I do the kinds of movies that I love, so. Yeah, the the best documentaries to me are ones that just are good storytelling, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are, like, very well made or very interesting cinematically. And, and I mean, like, within a documentary world cinematically, like, there's all of these interesting experimental documentaries or things that are, you know, known as, like, this is this is the epitome. This is, like, you know, the, the mastery of documentary filmmaking. And, like, I just, like, the I, I'm with you. Like, the stuff that, that excites me the most in a documentary film is, like, the subject, <laughs> which is very, I don't know, that's how I, I, I know that there's, room for growth there because of the fact that I'm still kind of just hooked on the topic as opposed to the the form 
But uh, I will say that when when documentaries break the mold, it's always interesting to me. And and so I there's something there. There's gonna one day I'm gonna wake up and I'm only gonna want to watch documentaries. It's gonna happen, one day. Yeah, I don't see that happening for me. But <laughs> <laughs> I still, you know, we watched six movies documentaries for this episode, and I'm glad I watched every one of them. I don't. I usually. I'm not sorry I've watched a documentary. I just can't process them in the same way I process fiction movies. And we watched all of these documentaries from the year 1969 because it felt like a really nice way to both hit upon documentaries as as a concept, as a thing, as a form, and also do something that we love doing, which is narrowing stuff down by year and and comparing and drawing conclusions in, in that way and just... Taking the temperature of the decade, you know, through through one year, through a hyper focus on one specific genre within one year. Yeah, and I think it works particularly well for this episode because the uh, the six documentaries that we chose, most of them are you know very well known, very well respected documentaries. Some I'd been meaning to watch all my life and just never got around to, and uh, you know it's just part of the reason we chose sixty nine is because there are all these major documentaries that came out that year. But it also is, it's kind of a, uh, a transitional year for documentary in that, you know, that old-fashioned style of documentary filmmaking where it's just a bunch of... Newsreel, talking news Newsreel, yeah, like the voice of God narrator just talking about what you're seeing on the screen, like whether it's an old Disney nature documentary or, you know, most any kind of documentary was done in that newsreel style and feels very old fashioned when you see it now. And none of the, the documentaries we watched for this episode use that style at all. It seems like they're all a result of consciously trying to break away from that, uh, that style of documentary filmmaking. And I think, I mean, I, I haven't read this anywhere, but I, I feel like part of the reason that, uh, you know, they felt it necessary to break away from that style of, documentaries that Mondo had really sort of taken it over, like all these like sleazy, fake-ish documentaries just showing you, quote-unquote, real life, the, the shocking things that, uh, that are happening in the world. And, and it, they all have this sort of wink-wink, voice-of-God narration. It, it made that style not reputable anymore. And uh, that's my theory for why all of these films... You know, they're not, uh, none of these documentaries were necessarily groundbreaking, but they are all done in a style that's very consciously new, like not, not looking back to that old-fashioned style. That's an interesting theory because I was sort of thinking along the lines of just the fact that we're now in an, a more media-savvy age. You know, I think one of the hallmarks of those old-style documentaries to me is the way that the people being interviewed feel so clearly self-conscious of the camera and the fact that they're on television. They don't know how to carry themselves on like with a camera in front of their faces. Whereas in these documentaries, we're finally getting into this change, this sea change of, of people that know what a camera is and are now starting to show off for the camera, even more so than they're trying to be polite for the camera or to like, you know, avoid eye contact or stare directly down. Like everyone seems to know the camera's purpose in this to a point where they actually seem to forget just how 
on screen they are to some degree that that there's like now we're we're finally getting dipping into that interesting part of documentary filmmaking where what's being revealed is in fact more than what the the subject thinks they are revealing and maybe that also just ties into the fact that that yeah the old style kind of got burned through trash (laughs) (laughs) well i mean i think the the first two movies we're going to talk about uh, especially the first one i think feel very modern in that way that it's there's almost no sense that there's a camera that the the people in them are performing for but you know what wait before we get into the these movies themselves i want to know why you uh you put these movies in the order you did why we're discussing them in this uh, order what was your what was your logic there that's what I was going to say that you should talk about because, yeah, we, we basically ordered these and then you correct me if I'm wrong because this was one of those things where it, I feel like that we can't, I came up with an order and then I had to sit there and like stare at it for an hour until I realized what exactly my own brain had processed. But the order was essentially from like cinema verite to, you know, specifically edited and stylized shooting and it's always documentary so we kind of i mean from really from this scale it goes from cinema verite to art house cinema but in between we're like swinging by a little bit closer to that newsreel so we're going from something with no narration whatsoever to stuff with narration and and very specific purpose and thesis to then stuff that goes back to spotty narration or at least like very very specifically edited camera work and and shots and how do i say what's the word i'm looking for manipulated yeah i guess i guess that's it it sort of goes from filmmaking that believes it is not manipulating its subjects to filmmaking that is overtly manipulating its subject yeah well it goes from the illusion of no manipulation of its subject and no manipulative intent on the audience to, well, I don't know, maybe we should get into this when we talk about the movies because talking about it abstractly like this is, it's, it's uh, hard. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but basically I was, I was excited when you put them in this particular order because it's just how I was thinking of them and my ideas about the, you know, different modes of documentary filmmaking come from uh from bill nichols who you know at the time that i was studying film was like the the foremost expert on documentary filmmaking and his book representing reality was like the first major work on you know studying or i guess like applying film theory to documentary and uh in that book he talks about uh four different modes of documentary filmmaking expository observational, interactive, and reflexive. Expository is what we're talking about with these voice of God type documentaries, these old fashioned ones. So we don't have any examples in this episode because those are from before. We We don't do things like that in 1969 anymore. But then you just happen to have ordered these movies in pairs that perfectly correspond to Bill Nichols' modes. You've got two observational documentaries, two interactive documentaries, and two reflexive documentaries. You know, they very clearly fall into these modes, but don't necessarily resemble each other 
perfectly, but we, we can talk about the differences, the similarities and differences between them. But uh, it was almost as if you'd read that, uh, that article I sent you when you chose the order of these movies. Maybe I did, <laughs> but I didn't. Now, when, I, when I chose this order, I was thinking on my own, but you're right, it did fit in quite well with the Bill Nichols concepts. I think after representing reality, he, he sort of expanded his definitions or the number of modes of documentary. I think he added like poetic and... Poetic, expository, reflective, observational, performative, and participatory. Well, yeah. <laughs> My knowledge of Nichols, he was still just talking about the four modes. Hey, this is from the 90s, man. All right. Well, maybe right after he wrote that book, he, he expanded uh -huh. his definition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, let's get into the movies. Our first couple of observational, verite-style documentaries or direct cinema. I've never been totally clear on what the difference between direct cinema and cinema verite is. And I'm, I think the practitioners of each think that there's more of a difference than there really is. But... Basically, it's fly-on-the-wall stuff. You put a camera in a room, and then once people sort of forget that the camera's there, you film them acting like themselves. And an amazing example of this is our first film, A Married Couple. Directed by Alan King, a Canadian. This couple, Billy and Antoinette Edwards, live in Toronto. They've got a three-year-old boy named Bogart and a dog with a with a black circle around its eye named Merton. Named Merton. We're immediately thrown into this couple's living room and they're arguing about furniture that they've just bought and or a rug specifically. And Right from the get-go, it's just these two are constantly at each other. Like, there's sort of a teasing, loving way that they argue with each other, but it's just constant. Part of the the interest of watching this film is that you sort of go back and forth saying, oh, these two are terrible together. What are they even doing together? They just constantly fight about everything. And he's so belittling of her, and she's... She's self-involved and pushy. And he's an egomaniac. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As the movie progresses, you definitely come down on one side. I mean, I, I would imagine any audience member watching this movie would come down on one side of whether they should stay together or split apart. And uh, who's really the crazy one in this relationship? There's really no question about it. We get a few scenes outside of their home that aren't just between the two of them. We see Billy at work. He works for an ad agency, and we see him filming a, or practicing a commercial with some kids, and he's like reading some copy that he wrote for an ad, and we see her talking to a friend of hers about her relationship with Billy. But otherwise, it's just you know them together, and we're, we're watching their almost continual arguing, but there are moments where they're just goofing around together, and, and there's a real sweetness between them. We see him go off on vacation for a bit and come back and argue about their lives and who's right and who's wrong and who's uh, 
who's being unreasonable. And it's shocking what this documentary manages to capture about these two people. I mean, they're clearly exhibitionists of some sort to be able to have allowed themselves this kind of openness on film. I mean, not to mention there's a skinny dipping scene where you, you know, they clearly are, are comfortable having their, their naked bodies on film. And uh, so... 69, baby. Yeah. But it doesn't... For something that's clearly about two people who aren't afraid to just let it all hang out, there doesn't really seem to be that much performance here. I didn't feel many moments where I felt like either of them were acting for the camera. What did you think? I mean, this is just full on. It's proto-reality TV in, in every possible way because I think that what you have here is people that are acting for the camera, but they're doing so in the name of showing their, their best selves and also, I think, a little bit of showing off in the way that, like, you know, a, a kid alone in a room might not, you know, jump off a bridge to prove himself. But when you're, you know, there with all your friends, you do it to, like, you know, kind of draw attention to me, me, me. And that's really what this reminded me of. It's just the same way that you get people that, like, all these, like, real housewife shows where, like, people actually get into physical fights where they probably never would have bothered to even be in the same room as the other person, but they figure, well, I'm here and the camera's here. I may as well put on a show. And mm -hmm. and that's really what this feels like. You get, you know, two egomaniacs together that are trying to showcase that they're, they're in the right and the other person's in the wrong. And also, P.S., look at me. I'm the star of a movie. And uh, it just stirs the pot even more than it's already being stirred by the fact that they are totally, <laughs> you know, not right for each other. But, I mean, really the thing that this movie made me think of was even beyond these two, and I want to talk about them too, but really what this, this my takeaway from this had much more to do with the fact that you see just how incompatible that six, 1960s nuclear family is with real live human beings. Because the, the main tension here, besides their the clash of their personalities, is, is the institution of marriage, and especially the way that marriage looked in the 60s, because you have the woman who is basically stuck at home. She's a, a thankless job as, as a housewife. She you know spends all day cleaning up after people, her children, the dog, uh, has to put, you know, food on the table for her family and her husband uh, requires sex at whatever certain hour. And, you know, and, and it's all of this, you know, and, and she has no money. It only comes from him and she has no way of making money. And so she's bored and restless and her entire hyper focus is on her husband and all of his tiny little flaws because that's the only thing she has to think about. And her harpsichord. Right. And and also the things that she wants, you know, the the materialistic goods that she covets because there's just nothing else she has nothing else in her life to fill her time pretty much i mean like even her friendship she's like just bitching about her husband and now like when i married him I, I thought he was god and that's not fair because nobody's like that and she talks about how she like married him when they, he never even said i love you to her but you know it was like there's clearly this other like there's a this social pressure of the fact that you have to be married you know, and, and even when stuff gets really out of hand and violent between these two, the husband still doesn't really want to divorce her because of the, the shame of divorce. 
And, you know, and, and she's the one who's sort of talking about it. And, and, you know, she also is constantly arguing about how she is. She's always has to be his servant and she has to be under his beck and call. And, and, and he's always like, well, if that's how you want to put it, you know, like he won't, he like refuses to acknowledge that, like, there is a, a grain of truth in what she's saying, which isn't to say that she's not also totally flawed and expecting way too much of him as, as even she admits herself. It's clearly a power struggle. Right, because she has none. She has none, but it's part of why she's insisting on Moorish arches in her house and and these sort of unreasonable things that couldn't possibly go in a house like this. And I think it's because he won't even cave in to her reasonable demands, like, you, you need to get to work on time so I can use the car. Maybe that is where the, the sort of performing for the camera thing comes in, because each of them is really trying to show the kind of power that they have in the relationship and showing what they want is what needs to happen. And uh, I'm sure having the cameras in the house probably brought this relationship to a head that it you know, would have taken a lot longer to come to had the cameras not been there to film it all and have them act out, turn their inner uh, thoughts into you know, outward expressions of anger. Right, yeah. I mean, I, I was amazed when you know they show one of his advertising jobs where he's doing a commercial about ketchup and it's like an argument between two children and like the the children it's like the intellect and the crass child and uh it just feels like such a reflection of how he views his own marriage (laughs) there are certain things in the rare moments outside the home where they're on their own that give almost too much structure to the film like that seems very obviously meant to be a reflection of their relationship. And when she's talking to her friend early on in the film about how once a man, you know, shows that he's not in control and doesn't have have the power in the relationship anymore, she loses interest and she becomes disgusted by him. And that later on in the film becomes a very specific thing that they're discussing and what he, you know, one of the reasons he says that he behaves the way that he does. For a movie that feels like, such amazing luck that the filmmaker stumbled on this particular couple and that none of it seems very structured, but it it does follow an arc. The structure is hard to spot, but I think you can definitely see the director's hand in in moments like that. Oh, yeah. Well, the the shot where he's going to work right at the beginning of the film is this crane shot. And I was like, well, there goes the fly on the wall. (laughs) (laughs) It's very anti-slice of life kind of a shot. And we also then get these two, like, you know, the way that this the movie was made was that there was a cameraman who was there with them at all times. And the director actually wasn't even in the house because he apparently was friends with this couple in real life and then sent a camera in there to document them. So he didn't want to be there lest he, like, sway the conversation in one way or another. And so, uh, you know, he would apparently watch the, the footage as it came back at the end of the day and then, like, make suggestions or directions from there and obviously was involved in the editing. So, I mean, the fact that you even have, like, the cameraman at his job and watching her, you know, talk to her friend, like, that already is, is pretty contrived and obviously not what is literally happening on top of them, I mean, all being naked and, and getting out there. I mean, like, I do wonder how much of that was, hey, what do you guys do? You know, let's, let's try this kind of a suggestion that, it, that they were naturally just stripping nude. But who knows? I mean, like, there is that scene where he accuses her of wanting fame 
more than anything else and she says no i don't that's not me whatsoever but she's also like making this movie (laughs) (laughs) well she says she doesn't want fame but she wants people to say who is that i want to be like her when she walks down the street so it's you know it's a certain kind of fame she doesn't want to be a movie star but she wants to be noticed i guess yeah, she wants to be Kim Kardashian. The, I mean, the thing I really also is is you just feel so bad for the kid watching this movie. It made me also think of a lot of like how the strives we've made in like childhood development. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's just like there's things that, that happen where the, whenever the adults are fighting, the kid is trying to like make peace and and you know that he's also I think he's a bit old to be having a pacifier and and all of this stuff. And it was less like. Ugh. And then, like, they're talking about, like, well, we should get divorced. And he's like, well, what if we have another kid? And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, it was interesting. And, and it, it made me really think about the institution of marriage as far as, you know, as, as it looked in the 60s and how much it was crumbling. And, and you really see why divorce, when the floodgates opened to society accepting divorce, you can see exactly why so many people jumped on that bandwagon. Yeah. I was very pleasantly surprised by this movie. I didn't know really what I was in for when I started watching it, but it kind of blew me away. The only trouble is that the arguments get a little repetitive and are always really uncomfortable. So as an audience member watching these two, just constantly arguing, it doesn't make for a very pleasurable watch, but it it's definitely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it gets deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of screaming. There, there is hitting. The two of them, personality-wise, I mean, I just, you, you really, you know, I did Google after I watched this movie if they did eventually get divorced, which of course they did. <laughs> but not before having another kid. Yeah. Yep. But it makes me wonder, though, how different the two of them were once they got divorced, because I have a feeling that they improved as human beings like this is definitely not their best selves I, f- I feel bad for both of them though I have to say that by the end of the movie I thought that he was kind of an irredeemable creep but so be it yeah but don't want to say too much want to let you discover some of that on your own because it's worth checking out I'm not sure why Alan King doesn't uh, I mean he was He's well known enough to have a Criterion box set of his movies be put out, or Eclipse anyway. But, you know, if it weren't for Criterion doing that, I I guarantee I would have never heard of this movie or this filmmaker. And he's doing something pretty major here, I think. Well, the next film I think everyone's heard of, Salesman. Directed by Albert and David Maisel and uh, Charlotte Zwerin, who I think she was involved in the editing. Like, I think that the, the, the Maisels were the ones with the cameras and she was, you know, on, on the back end helping them put this together. This one is a... Uh, Documentary about salesmen traveling up the eastern seaboard trying to sell extremely fancy Bibles to various people who they claim signed up on some sort of list at the church that they were interested in purchasing these Bibles and and they're on the mailing list. So they show up to their houses and try and sell them these prodigiously expensive 
Bibles. I guarantee you looked up to see what forty nine ninety five is in twenty twenty three dollars. You're goddamn right. I did Bart, and you know what it is? Four hundred and fifteen dollars. Holy moly! Right for one Bible, and they're asking people to either pay seven ninety five a month, which is sixty six dollars in today dollars, or four dollars a month, which is thirty three dollars in today's dollars. That's insane. That's so expensive. Like, I mean, then again, that's kind of what Netflix costs. (laughs) Anyhow, so we see these salesmen on the road from New England, like the the New England snow all the way down to Florida palm trees. And we go inside people's homes and uh, we go inside the crummy motel rooms that these guys stay in on the road. We have them in a corporate meeting in Chicago. The Mid-American Bible Company is the name of the the company that they're selling for. And yeah, we have them like driving in their cars and sort of reflecting to themselves or just talking to the camera because it's there and they're driving and there's not much else to do. The Maisels claim that they, they never prompted questions or they almost never prompted any questions to these guys and they just really let them, pointed the camera at them, let them talk and just let things play out as is, which was something that Pauline Kale accused them of, of otherwise, and there was a big scandal between them and The New Yorker because she ba- they basically said it was slanderous. But Pauline always just said shit. <laughs> Can never trust her facts. She she apparently like hired someone to like research these salesmen and claim that they actually weren't Bible salesmen and that the Maisels hired them to be salesmen and they were like what the hell like they were like call up the salesmen like they will tell you that they're actual salesmen uh, so the the difference between the last film and this film this one's definitely fly on the wall style uh, again but the layout of this feels a little more specifically plotted in only in the sense that we we have very specific characters that are kind of leading us through and kind of give us their own narration to what's happening in a way that the other movie we very rarely get in the heads of our arguing couple uh, as much as we're just listening in on their conversations together whereas this is really more guy talking to himself in a car style narration and so there's all these different sales guys. The main one is this guy, Paul Brennan, who all these guys have nicknames. He's the Badger. And there's another one who's called the Gipper and the Rabbit and the Bull and uh, all these, these weird nicknames. And it's kind of hard even to remember who's who because they're kind of interchangeable looking, these guys. I got the Gipper and the Bull confused a bunch. Yeah. And I'd seen this before, but you know, it took me halfway through the movie before I remembered which one was which i th- wasn't the bull he he seemed i think he was the corporate guy right no no he didn't have a nickname as far as i remember no but like he worked he was like one of the main he like was in chicago giving speeches no that's that was enough the salesman another one like, like yeah you know the kind of jowly guys with uh with See, black yeah ties. they all look the same yeah anyhow so you've seen this a couple of times what how did you feel about this documentary did anything change in the second time around? I was more I was really impressed with the technique this time. It pretty seamlessly creates an arc. Like you don't even really realize that the badger is your main character. Like they're all kind of equal at the beginning. I mean, I think that he's introduced first in the film, but for a long time it's, you know, they all have equal screen time and 
But then little by little, it, uh, you know, I think the Badger, Paul, Paul Brennan is the only one that you actually like, they're driving around town in his car with him. And he's, you know, singing his silly little songs, like pretending that he's uh, happy go lucky, but really he's. He's singing If I Was a Rich Man. Yeah, I know. Exactly. But he's, uh, you know, as the film progresses, he's both the sleaziest, like he engages in some real sketchy coercion of these people to pay their bills and to sign up for these payment plans that they clearly can't afford. But he's also, you know, the most miserable and the biggest failure of all of them we see as the film progresses. And the way it subtly shows that progression, I think it's really slick, like it's almost invisible, but uh, by the end, you really see what has happened over the course of it. Seeing it a second time, though, I liked these guys a whole lot less. Like, I remember the first time thinking they were kind of funny and charming, like not guys that you would ever, ever want to spend time with yourself, but they made for good subjects for a film because they had the sort of need to entertain. And, you know, I mean, mostly they're just trying to entertain themselves during these long hours on the road and in these motels in these small towns where there's nothing to do. But they just seem so much more pathetic and unlikable to me this time around. Like just, you know, like the dumpiest members of the Rat Pack or something. (laughs) Yeah, I was really fixated on their anger and their like, you know, the desperation for money. I think there was one point where Paul is talking about how he wants to make 35k a year like then he'd be happy which I also did the inflation calculator for which is 290k and I'm like yeah I would also be happy if I made that a year but uh you know it's their greed is the thing that was so amazing to me and and the different ways that they subtly manipulate people which is really where their nicknames come in. Like there's one guy who, you know, like the, the problem with Paul, the, the badger is that he sits there and, and annoys people. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he gets angry. He gets visibly angry of like, well, why did you call me here? If, if you're not even going to buy. And he's like really pressuring people on the awkwardness of him sitting in their house, you know, and he's never like overt towards the end. He starts to get actually angry in a way that is just like a clear turnoff. But the second that he starts to be more visibly angry is the second people are like, get out, you know, like there's never like a big confrontation. I'm not trying to say that there's like something bombastic the way that there even was in the last film, but like you definitely see the way that, you know, somebody else who is trying to talk about more, even the, the, and maybe this is the bull, the guy that says like, come on, stop messing around. Like, what are you waiting for? Jump in, you know, like any, and he's like pushing people in that sort of way. He seems to do better because he's not saying like, you know, he's not sitting there talking about like, well, well, what's wrong with you or something. It's more just about like, what are you chicken? You know, it's like, that's kind of how he's like making his sales which was interesting. I mean, there's all this weird stuff where like sometimes they try and get more like psychological or like talk about, did your parents beat you? Like they, you know, like there's there's, like a relatability in the way that they're like, yeah, yeah, me too. That was my upbringing, you know? And, And there's also like all that discussion that they have basically like shitting on the Irish and the Italians, because that's like pretty much who they're selling to as... as oh, it's as, a Catholic Bible, yeah. Right. So I there's also the kind of interesting to hear how they talk about these people in the privacy of the motel room that they're all sharing together 
versus how they're talking to them in, in their own houses. Do you really feel the awkwardness uh, of everything? And, and to the Maisel's credit, I mean, I, I appreciated just like the amount of like long pauses and, and holds on people that were clearly doubting whether or not they had this money to spend. And, and the vast majority of these people do not have this money to spend. You know, and you get these sort of close-ups on thinking faces or like people holding their arms. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on body language that comes across in this that really helps sort of, it, it pits you against these salesmen quite a bit, actually. I think that there is definitely like a larger commentary on the holiness, like a very clear juxtaposition of the, the holiness of the Bible versus the the sleaziness of these salesmen and how they're trying to get through in some possible way that relates or, you know, clicks with these people that they're willing to hand over $66 a month, you know, like it's fascinating. It's creepy. I'm with you. Like, I don't want to know any of these people. <laughs> and their tactic is never that they are, you know, they themselves have some connection to God. Like they'll use some catchphrases, you know, things that, that will make a good Catholic guilty, make them feel like, oh, I, I've got to have a Bible like this if I'm a good Catholic. But they never, you know, quote from the Bible very much at all. That's not even part of their tactic. Like they just know that, you know, automatically they've got this product that, uh, that these people can't afford and the only way that they can get them to buy them is to bully them into it. That's most people's takeaway from this movie, I guess, contrasting the, uh, the capitalist greed with the message in the book that they're actually trying to sell these people. Yeah, I, I was really more fascinated just by their talks about, oh, I only sold 10 or 11 sales, you know, and, and their depression over it, that their their own desperation for selling these things and, and sort of what it's amounting to, because we really don't learn anything about their family lives or why exactly they need all the money that they seem to claim that they need. When especially like someone like Paul Brennan, who seems like he's alone, <laughs> maybe he wasn't, maybe he has a family, but it's certainly a lonely lifestyle where they're sitting there on the road all the time talking about how everything in life is a sacrifice. So why don't you give put your money in my wallet? You know, like that's kind of, <laughs> yeah, I guess there, I mean, there is a crassness and there's like a brazenness to it, but there's also just like a very truth. There's to me, there's also truth about american life in, in itself i mean that's it's like even more specific than than mere capitalism it's just this obsession with money and, and this need and and the way that they do have boundaries they're they're not trying you know they want to do it in the slickest possible way that they can do it they're not openly robbing people but they're also like <laughs> you know openly resenting people who aren't falling for whatever their tactic is well, it's almost like what I found interesting was that like they sort of had to constantly remind themselves of the American dream. Like that's why they're always talking about money. Right. Because what they're doing is so unscrupulous. I mean, it takes a certain type of person to be a salesman and pitch this shit to people. But uh, their guilt over <laughs> over what they're doing, I think, is enough that they have to keep reminding themselves. Yeah. Oh, it's all about the money. All it's. I'll have a, I'll have a fortune. I'm just doing this for the money. Like they don't even necessarily want the money. It's the way they justify their behavior to themselves, I think. Uh, so those were the two observational documentaries, if you want to use Bill Nichols terminology. Now we step into the uh, interactive 
documentaries, uh, starting with In the Year of the Pig, directed by Emile D'Antonio. And uh, this is, I mean, it states right at the beginning of the film that this is a documentary about the origins of the war in Vietnam, how America got to the place that it was in 1968 when this film was made, the year before it was released, trying to explain to people what the war was all about and primarily how their leaders are all full of shit and there's, you know, there's no justifiable reason for being there. You know, besides just the, the profit and power that colonizing a, another country can get you, the, the, the sort of irrational fear of communism, that if the commies win, then it'll be the end of our way of life. And uh, you know, clearly the, the people, the Americans with the most money are the ones who have the most to fear about, uh, you know, of communists coming and, and making everybody equal. But yeah, I mean, mostly it's just... A lot of TV footage of press conferences of politicians saying, you know, like really like glaringly stupid things like blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah, that should never have convinced anybody of anything. So most of the pro-war people we don't we just see giving speeches and press conferences and all of the anti-war voices are actually like the, the, the filmmaker interviewing various, you know, Catholic priests who are protesting the war and various people like that, you know, soldiers who are against the war, who have uh, come back to America and refused to serve any longer and want to let everyone know what's really been happening over there. But while you're watching it, it can be a little tricky to distinguish which shots are the, uh, the interviews and which are the just, uh, you know, shots from press conferences. And it's, it's once you pick up on the fact that the pro-war people aren't the ones who are actually being interviewed by the filmmaker and that the anti-war people are being interviewed, that you it really becomes clear that this is... Uh, if it wasn't already clear that this film is vehemently against the war, once the technique that it uses to get that message across is clear, it, uh, it sort of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. But uh, and interspersed with all these press conferences, clips and uh, and interviews are these shots of Vietnam, showing the Vietnamese people and how they're just you know innocent peasants and we just need to leave them alone and you know why are we trying to put a puppet government in, in place when they've got this leader Ho Chi Minh that they follow to the ends of the earth just because he's a Marxist and uh, the North. Vietnamese may have an arrangement with the Chinese communists to, to come in and help them that they uh, you know feel like they need to, to ground these people into the into the dirt with thousands of tons of bombs. I mean they do show the Viet Cong as being super militarized to be fair. Well, everybody has a gun like the women it, it actually has a lot of great footage of women peasants firing heavy artillery. I think that's meant to inspire. It's like every everybody here believes in Vietnam for the Vietnamese and their leader Ho Chi Minh. 
believes in them and can provide for them what they want. And there's nobody who doesn't want to fight for their the freedom of their country. It's actually hard to separate what I actually was told about the war in this movie and, and what I already knew about the war. It sort of you know combines in my head a little bit because it's all just, it's so many talking heads like in these you know sound bites interspersed with the war and you know, some of the American soldiers abusing their prisoners or the people in these villages that they've burned to the ground that they just give a bowl of rice to and expect them to be happy that they're there to save them. But I think the most interesting thing for me about this movie is when it was made. There's just so much in here that it's, it's revealing things to the audience that it probably didn't know already. But because of when it's made, like, you know, pre-release of the Pentagon Papers, it, and, you know, even the, the Melee Massacre isn't mentioned at all because I guess it hadn't happened yet. But that event that was such a turning point for, you know, the American people, you know, just an event that they can point to as the, you know, typifying the horrors that were, that were going on over there. It's interesting to see this anti-war documentary without some of the typical things that, from our modern perspective, we're used to seeing as examples of what was so wrong about the war. I don't know, and it gets some things wrong. Like it, at one point, there's some experts saying that oh, if, if Kennedy had lived there, we, we probably wouldn't have gotten into this war because he really didn't start a war. And we all know now that, you know, because of the Pentagon Papers, I guess, that, yeah, Kennedy was... <laughs> was as responsible as anyone for getting us into this war. And, and he sure as hell would have done just what Johnson did. Yeah, I kind of agree with you about what you were saying, that this movie rubbed you the wrong way in being so overtly left-wing. Mm-hmm. Or, or what, rub, what rubbed you the wrong way about this movie? Because I, I think it's the same thing for me. Well, I think as the movie progressed, you know, it does. it starts out as being what it says it's about and, and sort of telling you the steps that got us where we are today in the, in the war, you know, starting with the Japanese occupiers leaving Vietnam and the French wanting to take it back over. And then the Americans coming in to support the French, but then the, you know, and then this and then that it starts out as a seemingly factual documentary about how we got into the war. But then in the second half, it really turns into a lot of talking heads like these, protesters, these left-wing people who just are talking about what's wrong with the war and why we need to get out of it. And uh, it it just felt more manipulative the more it went on. But I'm yeah. wholly on the side of the filmmaker and people who are against the war, but uh, the technique did start to bum me out. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. I was like, man, it's weird because I'm fully on their side, but like... I, I honestly, I mean, like it just there was something a bit try hard about it, and maybe it was also the choices of the people that they interviewed. I was not really, I mean, some of the interviews worked, but I thought that the the clips of LBJ talking, saying stupid shit like American boys are being called up to do the job that Asian boys should do, and it's like you know, so damning, like or whatever. This stuff about like how how you know uh, quote Orientals are all willing to sacrifice themselves, all of this kind of stuff where it's like overtly racist, like just completely pulled out of their ass. You know, it's just like their 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 own agenda that they're trying to put on, you know, on American soldiers and and also on you know on on the Vietnamese as if this is something that we have to come and clean this mess up. That that whole line about 
you know, like we're making peace in, out there. That's what we're doing. Is It's just like that stuff is so damning that to then listen to some journalists drone on about like <laughs> their own interpretation of these events, you're like, dude, I don't even, I, I got it, man. Like, don't worry about it. I enjoyed the their sort of breakdown about like ZM and like Madame New and all these like different corrupt leaders that, you know, eventually uh, the Vietnamese took out because they were clearly down their own path of corruption. Uh, I, you know, it was interesting to, to kind of hear, uh, you know, as they talk about the way that these monks were protesting and, and these Buddhists lighting themselves on fire and, and just the, the way that the everything has been building since the French involvement in Vietnam and, and the stuff that was the most striking up until 1968. That stuff is interesting. I mean, the history, like, you know, the, the newsreel footage, it almost made me wish that this had been more of a newsreel style documentary and a little less overt in its message. But at the same time, you know, the interviews with the soldiers, I thought, were really interesting. And I, I wish that, that this had maybe even been more of that. You know, I, if it could have been a clearly one-sided documentary if it had just kind of focused better on, on who we were talking to. Because that one deserter, he talks about, you know, you, you can't change the mind of, in like, an apathetic populace. And, like, he talks about how the key is, is through communication, but we can't communicate with the Vietnamese. You know, we, we have money and we have guns. And, uh, you know, we don't know why we're there. <laughs> we're, we're sitting there to, you know, search and destroy, which is already an impractical mission to begin with. And what happens is they get frustrated. They can't speak to these people. And so all you have left is just people striking out in anger because it's just all they, you know, they, these people hate them and they hate being there. And so it's just this sort of, you know, it's, we're back at our first movie. It's this like total just clash of people that don't understand why they're together. And yet they're thrown in a situation that they can't, neither of them can leave. And, uh, you know, so in that way, I thought this was a really interesting portrait of the Vietnam War, especially as something that was being made as the war was happening. I mean, like it it definitely takes balls to put out a documentary like this, especially in this year and be so critical of your own government. And even this is even before it was, you know, cool in in a way. I mean, like people were definitely speaking out clearly in in 68 and in the later 60s. And this was really part of all of this clash that was still building and building. But that's the thing is that we haven't even gotten to the pinnacle of just how crazy this whole situation was. And so, so yeah, in that way, it's it's an interesting documentary. But I agree with you that like, there's something that kind of irks me about it in the same way. And, And maybe it is just that anger on the surface of the whole thing and, and the inability to look at any of this on a, in a broader sense, because we're just so mired in the muck. Yeah. I mean, I almost wish there weren't any interviews at all. And it was just sound bites of politicians saying horrendous things like the <laughs> yeah. D'Antonio's previous film of his that I'd seen uh, point of order is just, um, you know, it's about McCarthy and the, the anti-communist hearings, and it's just sound bites, and it's just showing what a monster this McCarthy guy, who has a cameo in this film, of course, um, but how how awful he was, and he you know he just lets McCarthy portray himself as as the monster in this situation without really anybody on the on the sidelines commenting on what's happening and why he's a bad person, and I I found that 
movie a little dry, but at least it felt more effective in a way. But yeah, it was it definitely for was a brave movie to put out in, in 1969, and it was quite controversial. It was banned. I actually didn't read to see, you know, what kind of distribution it actually got in America. I know it it upset a lot of politicians when it was released, but. I don't know if it meant that it, uh, I, th- I think it got pretty widely distributed, not in the first run uh, circuit, but, uh, or, you know, not in the, not in the big theaters, but uh, it definitely made its way around to the smaller theaters and did its part to let people know what was going on and help them to understand what was so wrong about this war. Speaking of understanding what's wrong about wars... <laughs> Here's our other big documentary of this year, which is The Sorrow and the Pity. Directed by Marcel Ophels who is son of Max. (laughs) This is a four-hour documentary. It's in two parts about France in World War II, specifically uh, the the open collaboration between the Vichy government and the Nazis. And, you know, with a focus on this town of uh, Clermont-Ferrand. I say that right? It sounds good to me. Same town that's featured in uh, My Night at Mods, which came, also came out in 1969. Oh, no shit. Mm-hmm. Well, part one of this documentary, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, this is very much so a talking head documentary. It is, but it, unlike the previous movie, um, it really makes an effort to interview people on both sides of the issue, yet you also have a very the the hand of the filmmaker is very clearly in this film not only do we sometimes see marcel we we see the camera sometimes we will hear questions being asked occasionally so it is it's much more of something that is is being clearly shaped as it's being made and though we do hear from People that we hear from Germans, uh, you know, after the war, we hear from French after the war, we hear from British, all sorts of different people who experienced it from that, that one city specifically. They are being taken to task to a degree by the interviewer. So there's also a, there's a clear point of view happening in the sorrow and the pity, but it makes it much more of an effort to at least allow everybody to to speak and it doesn't you know try and shut them down so much as it tries to have a more thoughtful prodding and discussion based on what they're saying so it's four hour long documentary as i said so i'm going to try to to sum it up as quickly as i can but part one chronicles the collapse of france at the hands of hitler and his invading army uh, it talks about the way that Prime Minister uh, Philippe Pétain's government not only rolled over for Hitler, but basically welcomed the Germans in with open arms. In the name of armistice, you know, they totally let their allyship with the UK and with uh, America just melt away the second that the Germans got there. The film focuses on a few case studies of specific people and their experiences, uh, including the retelling of this sort of kangaroo court against the Jewish politician 
uh, Pierre Mendez France, who was accused of desertion along with uh, Jean Zay, uh, who ended up being murdered uh, after this trial. They touch upon anti-Semitism in general, mostly the way that the, the Catholic French distance themselves from their Jewish countrymen or that they passively watch them start to disappear around them as the war progressed. Uh, and they also interview, as I said, an actual German who, who is funny enough, he's at his daughter's wedding and he's in like his full, uh, you know, Nazi uniform with all of his little medals uh, on his chest. And they're just sitting there at this daughter's wedding as he talks about his experience stationed in the town. And it's not afraid to cut to the, you know, this ex-Nazi's wife and daughter in her wedding gown who are clearly horrified by the things that this guy is admitting to proudly. I don't know how horrified. I think the daughter is a little horrified. I think the wife is less horrified. But I just can't believe that this woman has to sit there and listen to the, her father be interviewed on her own wedding day. I mean, come on. <laughs> so that's part one, essentially. There's there's quite a bit more. But um, that's, that's kind of the main focus. Part two is more about the end of the war. Uh, it's about the resistance. It's about how people were getting carted off to concentration camps and, and just in general, the chaos of the, the final year of World War II. Uh, there's a lot said about Prime Minister Pierre Laval, uh, who was even more in step with Hitler, uh, especially as it concerned his not-so-secret anti-Semitism and the, his belief in essentially snuffing out the Jews in the name of sacrificing the few to save the many. Uh, there There's an interview with his son-in-law who uh tells says how much of a wonderful liberal he was and he's misunderstood <laughs> both things can be true a lot of interviews with a uh ex-resistance members and how they they talk about how they carried out attacks on germans which is then paired with the german soldier at his daughter's wedding and, and another german soldier and them, them giving their own takes on these like what they saw were as terrorist attacks against them that were unwarranted because, gosh, they were just so nice as the occupying force in this town. They, you know, always went out of their way to be very polite. And uh, we have this uh, French aristocrat who talks about, uh, you know, his just experiences of and, and horror at what was happening as he sits in this room with his several children. Are you talking about the guy who fought for the fascists? He went to the Eastern Front? No, that's the next guy I'm about to say. (laughs) And that's juxtaposed with another aristocratic ex-fascist French soldier who actually fought with the German army at the Eastern Front. And he talks about his reflections on what he'd do differently now that he's an adult and he knows better and was on the losing side, quite frankly. He's very interesting because he's very self-reflective and he's very uh willing to admit just how wrong he was in a way that genuinely feels humbled like he actually had a legitimate come to god realization about the really terrible and unforgivable decisions that he made as a young man and and that's kind of interesting because he's very articulate uh in speaking about why it is that he got into fascism and what the experience was during it he talks specifically about how he grew up in a in you know a, a, an environment that was violently anti-Semitic to begin with, and and how you know the fascism kind of came hand in hand with that uh, when it started to roll around. 
Uh, and then there's a lot of talk about what went down after the Germans were defeated from French women being dragged into the square and getting their heads shaved to the wives of resistance members being tortured and murdered or, you know, just neighbors ratting each other out for having collaborated or having not collaborated. It's a lot, but it was also, I think, incredibly easy to watch and, and fascinating. It's moving. I, I really enjoyed the fact that we got to sort of have these very calm and focused discussions with all sorts of people and, and hearing their excuses, I think, is really the, the most fascinating part of this to hear everybody kind of just talk about how uh, what else could I have possibly done? You know, like I was I was looking out for myself and, and this this emphasis in general on the idea that people were so. Uh, from all different economic levels, if they were rich, they were worried about losing everything that they had. And so they went along with everything. And, you know, well, it wasn't them anyhow. It was just it was a terrible pity to watch. And then if they were poor, you know, they didn't have anything to begin with. And so they were so busy worried about where the next their next meal was coming from that, you know, if their neighbor got disappeared, then so be it. And just the way that people justify these things to themselves, I think, was was so fascinating about this whole documentary. And it also made the point how those were the same people who were eager to join the resistance, the, the, the people with nothing to lose. You know, the bourgeois were really the villains on the French side because they were the ones who just said, if we just you know do what the Germans say, maybe I'll get to keep all my stuff. My Jewish friends won't be around anymore, but, you know, we all have to make sacrifices but it's the farmers and the people who, who uh, it's the people who receive the least from their nation who seem to be the biggest uh, patriots. And so it's the lower classes who really formed a huge part of the resistance. And they were the ones willing to risk their lives and, and say, no, this is not right. Can't stand by and watch these Germans walk all over us. You know, vive la France. I thought that was interesting. I mean, there's so much that's interesting in this movie. It's, it's it's incredible. I mean, it is so justifiably famous. And I'm sorry I waited this long to watch it for the first time. We talked about this a little bit in our, our New German Cinema episode where, um, you know, just the fact that, like, 1969, that was 24 years after the end of, like, World War II. <laughs> like... The Holocaust happened, and 24 years later, how weren't there, like, thousands of documentaries about this, you know? Like, how is it that, that there is only, like, that even four hours doesn't feel like enough to unpack what actually went on? And the thing that really struck me watching this was just how little people did seem to unpack how much of history kind of gets made and then forgotten through this lack of communication, how people are, are afraid to express this stuff or they don't even know that they need to express this stuff. But they're willfully forgetting. I, I think that's kind of the point. Like it's such a stain on their history that nobody wants to remember what happened. Even the, these resistance guys who you know, know that their neighbors on the other side of the fence were the ones who, like, turned them in to the Germans. And nobody wants to talk about it because it's so shameful. And I think that's really the advantage that this movie has over in the Year of the Pig. It's got that perspective. O'Fool said, well, we've got to talk to these people who were there before they're gone, and we've got to just stick our finger in the wound because we're starting to forget what happened 
during the occupation and how the French turned against French and we couldn't trust our neighbors. And, you know, our country did some really horrible things because they were too scared to fight. They didn't want to lose everything to the Germans. So they're just giving in as much as they need to so they can hold on to whatever they have. They don't want to lose their lives or their money or their, you know, I mean, it's fully that, that banality of evil on display. I mean, it really is. You see just how, how people can turn a blind eye because of these little things. It's the little comforts, you know, and, and it's not even the big ones. Cause as you said, like the people who had the least to lose were the ones that were more willing to, to go out of their way to do something to help. I like, there's an interview in the second half with one of the the main uh, resistance organizers, and he talks about if I had a, you know, a, a dollar basically for every guy that every like liberal who came up to me afterward and said, you know, I was kind of like I was part of the resistance too because I had a gun and a, you know, I was willing to shoot a German, but like, well, did you? Uh, no, <laughs> you know, and, and just like the way that you know people just they they self justify and it's and it's all for yeah it's all for their comfort you know and and that that it's it's uncomfortable to acknowledge what's really happening there's a guy in the first half that they interview where he talks about hey weren't you the guy that put out a like full page ad in the paper when Jews were being taken away and their their businesses were being destroyed and they were being murdered in the streets and they were being kicked out into ghettos didn't you take out a full page ad just to say, Hey, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, Hey, you guys really did your, uh, your research here. That, that's pretty fascinating. You know, like, and he's totally, and they're like, so, so why'd you do that? Well, I mean, why wouldn't I, you know, like, well, I don't want to be, you know, they, they, everyone was going after the Jews. I didn't want to get mistaken. And my name, you know, could have been mistaken for Jewish, but you know, I, I wasn't. So I just, you know what, there's nothing wrong with that. I just didn't, you know, I'm not Jewish. That's all. I'm just saying I'm not Jewish. And, and so you just sort of, you see how easily, you know, millions of people die at the hands of that kind of attitude. I mean, that, that's really, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrifying and it's, and it's fascinating. And I mean, it, it's not only that one guy, right? Because then you have this, this whole Vichy government that was just, I mean, I've, know quite a bit about you know the the holocaust especially but but also this time of uh, this period of of uh european history but i don't think i realized i i knew that the the french government was complicit i didn't realize just how complicit and the just some of the stuff i mean there's one story in here about just how you know the french basically talking about how the gestapo only had so much power and if they hadn't had all of the French police at their disposal doing their bidding, if not being so gung ho and so willing to do the bidding of the Gestapo, then, you know, like the, the amount of death, the death toll would have been significantly lower. And there's this one story about how they went and rounded up every single Jew in town and, and, you know, put them on trains. And then they uh, were just so excited about, rounding up all these Jews that they ended up rounding up over 4,000 children that they had separated from parents where the Germans didn't even ask for that. But the French took the French police took it upon themselves to, to find these and, and take these children, separate them. And then they're talking about how Laval, you know, asked for these kids to, you know, all these other uh, government officials were writing to Laval and saying like, can we get the, can let's, let's leave the kids alone. Let's put them on a boat to America. Let's, let's just send them somewhere else. And Laval says, no, 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 let, let's kill him. <laughs> you 
He says, I, I, I'm preventing the disease. It's, it's the quote that he has written. I mean, like this stuff is written out in, in letters and correspondence. And, and uh, immediately these kids get like gassed to death. You know, and it's just, it's like the, it's like, so <laughs> it's, I'm only laughing because it's so upsetting. It really like, made me cry watching it. It's just so horrifying. And just, again, the levels, it's like, you know, you have both the guy on the street who says, like, oh, I don't know, I, you know, it was fine for me, all the way up to the government that says, like, you know, yeah, 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 kill these guys, it, you know, it makes my life easier. They're interviewing these people who, for the past 20 plus years, have justified to themselves in their heads this, you know, their behavior and have really convinced themselves that they did nothing wrong. So when the cameras are on them, they just sort of spit out this justification, you know, their own reasoning for why they did what they did. And once it comes out of their mouth on camera, you know, you can't believe that they've said what they've said. They don't think about it. You know, they they witness these horrors. They don't want to have to think about it, but they mostly they don't want to have to think about their complicity in in all of the horrors. Yeah, like those those teachers that couldn't remember how how the students were reacting when other students were being arrested or their parents were being arrested. And these teachers were like, yeah, I don't have any memory of that. And you're like, how? <laughs> yeah. My one problem with this movie, and it isn't really a flaw with the movie. It's my own flaw, is that I had a pretty decent knowledge about the occupation, and the Vichy government. I mean, I always thought of it as a sort of a, Patem versus De Gaulle thing, a very, you know, simplified version of it. Like I, I knew about Laval, but I didn't realize just how involved in, in some of the worst shit that happened he was. Right. But it all there's just so much in here. It's clearly made for a French audience who would know, you know, right offhand, like something like the um Meryl Kabir, where the uh, English bombed the French Navy were collaborating with with the Germans at that time. And I didn't, like in the context, I was able to sort of figure out what that was all about, but it's just stated matter-of-factly this event that everybody in France knows about. And it took me took me a little bit to catch up. And and there were a lot of things like that where it's like, you know, I know I know something, but it's many years later and I'm not French and I just right. you know I I don't have the background to really know, understand everything that you're talking about. Not to mention the fact that my French is not good enough for me to be actually be reading who these people on the, they, you know, when, when every new interview subject comes up on the screen, they say, you know, who they are, what they did, when, and, but you're, I was so busy reading the subtitles that I couldn't see, necessarily see who these people were that were talking. And, and so, I mean, I, all of this could be, fixed with, with a second viewing, uh, which I think is pretty essential, and I would definitely be willing to do that, despite how long this movie is. It's really just so rich. There's so much in this movie. Bart, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, which is you pause the movie and Google. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was doing quite a bit of, too, because I agree with you. There's stuff where I was like, I, I don't know what this event is. I don't know who they're, they're like... Uh, you know, even the guy I name dropped earlier, uh, Jean uh, Zay, I, you know, they also talked like this is everyone knows who this guy is. And I had to I had to Google him uh, and figure it out. But uh, I'm with you. I think the thing my understanding of this documentary was actually was more wrong than my understanding of, of I mean, the history I knew the the documentary I thought was actually more about the Holocaust. And it turns out that it really isn't. And I kind of wanted to hear more about that. Like I felt like there were things that weren't 
probed properly in regards to that and in regards to anti-Semitism to some degree. I mean, uh, Ophels is Jewish, so I know that was clearly, uh, you know, and I, and that's always the thing that he comes back to continuously. But, um, again, it's just, it's just crazy to me to think that like, I, I know that like information couldn't travel as quickly and that things were held back and, uh, you don't, fully know what happened even 20 years after something happened it takes longer and longer for the true nature of especially events like this where people are so willing to withhold the truth to come out but um i kind of i kind of wish there was a bit more of that but one thing to your point about the importance of this uh especially today is i mean to hear these the that uh ex-fascist guy you know uh saying like I fully believe that neo-nazism is going to reemerge under a new name and and you know and and here we are <laughs> here we are everyone we're we're in it so uh you know it's it's worth watching it's it's also just worth watching in the sense of you you check yourself like what would you do in a situation like this and i think that the vast majority of us would uh quite quite likely um cater to our own comforts and and you see that in yourself when it comes down to even minor uncomfortable situations i think it is human nature to look the other way and it and it really takes determination to break out of that mold and and break free of that fear but uh but yeah as you know i, I feel like we could have done a whole episode on this movie alone just cuz it it was so fascinating to me yeah it's so absorbing. I mean, you, you were saying that it, like it, it was so easy to watch, but that it is it's completely absorbing. And I think that's probably why I wasn't Googling things, you know, pausing it and to Google things, because I just wanted to see, oh, what's what's next? It's four hours of surprises, like not believing that they were able to capture people saying these things on camera. And part of what makes it easy, quote unquote, to watch is that the first three hours of this four hour documentary don't really delve into the real, you know, horrors, the physical torture. They're really like awful things that you expect to be hearing about through the whole thing. It will reference, you know, executions and things that you know are bad, but it doesn't really get into describing the horrible things that people are actually doing to each other until the last hour. And that last hour of this is so soul crushing but you're, you're so invested in the film at that point that you just have to keep obsessively watching it and get to the end, even though it's so hard to listen to some of the things that they're describing. Multiple genocides have happened within our own lifetime. And see how little you know society cares about those. It's just amazing to me. It's amazing that this, this continually happens. <laughs> I mean, it's just it, that's to me is the most soul crushing aspect of this is like th this stuff is still happening. I mean, and, and you know, with with other minority groups and around the world and, and uh, who cares? <laughs> yeah, people want to will always want to put themselves over other people and, and justify it somehow. It's the human condition, I guess. I love that for us as a species. Amazing. Well, on a more positive note, after this film, we jumped to another very long documentary, um, but it was about the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City called The Olympics in Mexico.
directed by Alberto Isaac, who made some films, but he's really only known for this. Um, he was he was actually an Olympic swimmer previous to making this documentary, and in some ways, it's exactly what you would expect. Leni Riefenstahl's Olympia is clearly a model for this documentary. It, it will show you know lots of people competing in various events, but it you know abstracts the bodies and will slow down the film. Uh, you know, just to admire the the shapes and the movement on the screen. And it definitely is into this like reflexive mode of documentary filmmaking where the filmmaker is just trying to put beautiful images on screen. You know, there's there's sort of a theme of the achievements of the individual athletes in the Olympics, but it really is just, it's mostly about putting these beautiful images on film Neither you nor I are sports fans at all, but I didn't have any trouble watching this film, except for the horse torture part, but I'll let you talk about that. Um, <laughs> there is some narration. The filmmaker will, will come on every so often and sort of tell you about the event and who's doing what and what they did in the previous Olympics and very interested in telling you about all the records that are being broken. It will, every time some kind of record is broken the, the narrator will jump in and say no one has ever done this before you're definitely not following any particular nation necessarily although the americans seem to be winning every goddamn thing i guess if i had more american pride i would be excited about that but i just kind of wanted the americans to stop winning so much and it's in mexico so you often will hear the crowd chanting mexico mexico when when the Mexican team is on the field or Mexican athlete does well. But it's pretty non-narrative. It shows you this coming together of nations, and a lot of that is like the opening ceremonies. That's actually the opening ceremony in the Olympics is if I ever tune in to the Summer Olympics, that's all I watch because I always find that pretty fascinating. Everybody coming out in their sort of national garb and showing themselves off on the on the field and marching around. This movie also focuses on just all the people from the different nations just going to the lunchroom and and eating together and sort of, you know, rubbing shoulders and the sort of camaraderie. There's no sort of national pride, you know, where your country is the best and you want to beat all the other countries is is not really shown at all in this film. It's, it really is just about individual achievement and the beauty of the human form on the screen. And also there's some really amazing 1968 era graphic design in this. There's a whole sequence where it shows you like stamps and programs and things from this Olympics and that's all really cool to see. And, it's, and that's also done in an abstract way. It's a visual treat more than anything, but it also has certain really emotional <laughs> moments that it captures. If there's any kind of you know drama or climax or story here, it's the marathon that's shown at the end of the film, and you know it is one of the only semi-narrative parts of the film, so I, I don't want to say too much about it because it's it's definitely the highlight. But I got a little weepy at that part. See, the funniest thing about this movie to me is that you got emotional at the end and I spent this whole movie just wishing I was as high as the director because <laughs> to me this is this is the movie that pot built and I feel like more than anything you're like okay like marijuana is here because <laughs> the whole thing is just it's it's slow-mos it's close-ups on like limbs 
It's like repetition, abstract music. It, it's just so, I feel like they are so high in that editing room. <laughs> the score is awesome in this. Really adds to the film so much. It's just like stings, or, you know, crescendoing strings or just little, you know, not really melodic music. It's all just sort, it is sort of abstract and almost like sound effecty the way that the music is used, but it's so effective. The music was great because it keeps you in that like high state of mind. I mean, plus, and then you throw in all that killer graphic design and like the, the promo fashion stuff. There's an amazing dress. I like, I immediately Googled it after the movie was over. I was like, where can I buy this for $5,000? This 1968 Olympics dress. It's amazing. You have to look it up, look it up. <laughs> then they also have all of these like giant abstract sculptures that they installed strictly for the Olympics. And those are some of those rule, like some of them are really cool. And some of them are just like, you're like, wow, I just feel high looking at this like giant obelisk that's like bright freaking orange and pink or whatever. It was just wild. I just thought like so much of this was, was about like the feeling of sports. <laughs> and that's like the time where I'm like, yeah, I can get on board with that because I don't really care my problem with sports is that I, I have nothing to compare it to. So when I see somebody like jump up really high, I'm like, all right, you know, like, well, I don't know how hard that is. <laughs> the pole vaulting really did make me gasp. That was amazing to watch. I mean, it was amazing to watch in slow-mo because now you're watching like bodies move in a way that you can't, your eye can't see, you know, that's when you're like, Oh, it's the power of cinema. I'm so high. You know, stuff like that. I mean, I love looking at, like, all the close-ups on people's faces, like, and just the way that everybody looks so much like their country. <laughs> uh, I thought that was kind of fascinating. I bet you like the technology montage, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, but, I, but like, what the sporting accomplishments... I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I'm looking at. Like, unless you made me go and do it and then I had to watch somebody else. I, I just cannot, I, I can't wrap my mind around caring about sports in, in any sort of way. <laughs> so that's my, this is a, my character flaw. That's my problem. But when you're just like, yeah, like, let's look at like a montage of like people's butts. I'm like, sure. Yeah. You know, like, great. Let's, let's do that. <laughs> what surprised me is that only happened really once. I was so impressed with the movie for the first two and a half hours because it really was not objectifying, you know, it was objectifying all of the athletes equally, but there's nothing sexual about it. But then it gets to this women's relay race. And then there's this whole sequence where it's just showing their legs and butts. And I'm like, oh. And <laughs> their kinda, crotches. And yeah, their crotches. it's pretty like up in their crotches too. And you're like, all right, I'm good. Yeah, I guess he <laughs> said, oh, <laughs> you know, I got to throw something in there for the fellas. Uh, but yeah, it, it seemed really out of place in a way because it was so much about the beauty of bodies, but it, you know, there's nothing sexual about it until that sequence. But then it's followed up by one of the coolest looking things is when it's got this super zoom on the women's relay. And so everybody's totally flattened and it's just a side view and you just see these shapes moving back and forth. Do, do you remember that part? One of the most amazing looking things to me was just watching these bodies move back and forth in a really two-dimensional plane. It just made everything look so cool. The gymnastics were amazing, and it didn't even, 
you know, he didn't use any special cinematic techniques to uh, to show off how how great the gymnastics were. Well, I mean, that's the thing, though, as you said, it's like we get more time with the abstract moment. We get more time on that butt montage that than we do on like the wins for the most. I mean, like, yeah. you know, we have that like that famous 1968, the two African-American uh, athletes, Tommy Smith and John Carlos giving black power salutes you know, as winners of gold and silver. Yeah, wearing their Black Panther berets. Yeah, that was like a big deal here. And like, I don't know if like the filmmaker was like, yeah, whatever. And just like, but there's no, there's like, there's nothing about it in this movie. They, they barely even, you see it and it happens in like a split second and they move on the same way that they do with every person who they show winning. Yeah, the filmmaker understood the visual power of that, but makes no like, commentary on it at all or brings anything political into it at all it's just you know visually inspiring and he's like yep that's pretty cool looking let's move on to the next cool looking thing right because he's too high well the the two things that i thought were were really visually fascinating it was that power walking competition (laughs) nothing he could do to make that look anything but stupid and water polo too Speed walking and water polo are the stupidest looking sports in the world. The speed walking one got my attention because that's something I know how to do. And I was like, all right, I, this is me going to the subway and trying to get to work from the subway. This is exactly what I look like. So I get it. Like that one I understood. I was I was all in. I wanted to know who won that one. And the other thing was that freaking horses, the which was insane. Two horses absolutely die on screen in this movie which was so horrifying because they're they're running this course that is clearly flooded and so there's this like you know there not only is it a hard course to run and of course the, all these horses haven't like tried this course out nobody's familiar with it cuz they're all coming from away and the altitude the horses couldn't handle the altitude so they weren't performing as well as they normally do Right. And it's like a golf course or something. So it's not made, you know, it's like the whole thing is insane. And it's so flooded to the point where people, even when they're riding these horses, which are all like six feet plus tall, you know, probably even taller than six feet. They're fully immersed in the water. Like the horses have to swim with these people on their backs. And you even see it flood because you see how the water is increasing as this like montage keeps going. And there's this one jump where they're trying to like jump over a river and like the bank that they jump onto, they think it's hard dirt and it's soft sand. And you're just like, ah, it's like so hard to watch because you're you're thinking at bare minimum, these horses are going to break their legs. But like even worse shit happens. It was just awful. And it goes on for a long time. So long. And I I, like I Googled it after, too. I was like, at least two of these horses died and, and, and sure enough. Uh, but it was just crazy to me. I, I don't know that, that one was the one where I was like, you're really, you're, you're killing my buzz, man. Yeah. But, uh, for a three plus hour sports documentary, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's film as film. The filmmaker had a few objectives, but really he just wanted to put beauty on the screen and I'm okay with that. He just really wanted to juxtapose that. Like, Iranian weightlifter who was four foot eleven, with that Russian weightlifter who was just like a freaking mountain. Mm-hmm. That's what he wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, well, there, I mean, he he finds all sorts of moments like that where it's the absurdity. I mean, that's why he, he spends so much time on the speed walking because it's so absurd looking. I'm gonna. I'm definitely rewatching this when I'm high. <laughs> definitely. 
Probably won't feel like three hours when I'm high either. Well, our final film is another three-hour-long movie. We saved all the three-hour-long movies for last year. And it is Walden by Jonas Mikas. also known as diaries notes and sketches and I, I i was a little bit on the fence about including this because to me this is not it's an experimental film and it's not a documentary though uh, the, the there's an overlap clearly but um i don't know we were trying to find this like as we mentioned at the beginning we were trying to find this way to order different documentaries and it did feel like okay we have to include the the, the furthest possible edge of the boundary for documentary filmmaking and and so here we are with a uh, old Jonas Mikas who uh really we we should it's it, another one where I feel like we owe him a full episode but uh so be it Walden I don't know how to <laughs> sum this movie up other than that it is all shot on 16 millimeter film there are six reels that we go through I never read the throw Walden but um, my understanding is that it's very much about like studies of nature and, uh, you know, creating a feeling to some degree. And uh, that's definitely what this documentary does. It's very much clips and pieces of Jonas Mikas's life uh, as he wants to portray it. It's a lot of very, very quickly cut footage, very specifically edited uh, in his stylistic manner we there's so many different all of his famous friends make cameos in this it's all like you know today i met up with uh adam sitney and and you know here we are and we're gonna go meet brackage as we uh, cross central park and you know like so you have a who's who of experimental filmmakers and and you know thinkers uh, all the way to like uh alan ginsburg and and uh the finale is John and Yoko Ono even uh, doing their bed in for peace. And you get Andy Warhol on the factory. So you see yep. Lou up on stage performing with uh, right. Velvet Underground. And so it's always those are always the highlights when you're like, oh, I know who that is. And and it follows through with like, you know, the all the seasons continuously. So it's very much meant to be this, you know, it's always, always rooted in nature. The real one it starts in winter, but spring is in the air. And then by reel two, we ha- it starts with a bunch of circus footage that then turns into Times Square and New Year's Eve. We see like a Hare Krishna march. Uh, we That's when we see the, the Velvet Underground. Reel three, we're in the dead of winter. We actually get even some flashbacks where he, he starts to narrate a little bit. Like typically he's intersplicing this footage with cards like typed out cards that give you like some kind of hint as to what we're looking at um, and then as the whole movie goes on he starts to actually narrate some of this stuff but it's always remains abstract there's no plot you know it's just this sort of winding memories of, of Jonas Mikas by real four it's winter and Christmas he goes to visit uh, Stan Brackage and his family we see Jane we see uh, the Roscoe the donkey we see all of his children. He gets very excited when he finds rabbit shit in the snow. Uh, Real five, 
We are watching spring come. We are uh, in Newport. We're in the country. There's this huge wedding that we see a ton of. Everyone's flying in helicopters at the wedding. It's like obviously very rich people. He has a whole film crew from Germany that wants to show how underground filmmakers work and they can't figure out how to do that. And they're like trying to drive around New Jersey and, and find a good place to shoot a film. And real six, there's more weddings and there's this... Much cooler wedding than the other Yeah, one. they're all dancing in a club and, and it's way more experimental and a hipper crowd and... Uh, yeah, another winter scene in flashbacks and, and all of that. And and I don't know about you. I am not, I, I don't, I like Jonas Mika's fine. I haven't really seen that much of his work, I'll be honest. But uh, I don't love him. And watching three hours of this it really made me miss Stan Brakhage in his one minute long movies. Because I don't know, it, it kind of aggravated me. I think by real five especially once we got to that really rich wedding i started to just feel angry that wedding yeah that that was the turning point for me too because there's so much of it and it's just wealth on display just get the hell out of there jonas but he kept that camera going well it's just this sort of like formless cinema kind of just wears on me and i think that there's something very you know art for art's sake and and i think that mika's is the type of guy that is living for that and it's the sort of thing that i find incomplete and devoid of what actually makes life worth living <laughs> you know like i appreciated this especially at the first couple hours i appreciated it but after a while it's just started to feel it's it started to feel contrived to me it starts to feel like a lot of self-promotion through this sort of faux lens of impartiality and and i resented it i started getting angry I didn't get angry, but I definitely got impatient. I learned very quickly that I should take a nice long break between each reel when it says end of reel two. Okay, press pause, go have lunch, go do some stuff and get back to it. And I think that in a way that almost feels like the way this needs to be watched. It's three hours long and you feel like it feels like six hours long. It's incredible looking like just trying to figure out how he was shooting this footage took up a lot of my mental space while I was watching this because there's not a whole lot else to think about while you're watching it. You're just sort of watching images on the screen move by very quickly. But he must have shot everything at a, a very slow camera speed, showing most everything in that faster-than-life way. And he must have you know, randomly decided, okay, now I'm going to switch to to a different speed and there doesn't there's no logic to the different speeds that he uses or his camera movements a lot of random jittery camera movements so you know, very brackagey and he would sometimes use double exposure like brackage did there there's sequences in this that very much reminded me of brackage including the stuff the long sequence at the brackages where you see a lot of the stuff the same house and and uh, and yard that you see in in a lot of brackages films so that was kind of neat but it's yeah it feels so long but i don't think there's there would be any point to this movie if it was any shorter it's a diary this is my life this is me i take my camera everywhere and i'm just gonna show you everything that i shot and if you just took a piece of that an hour and a half chunk of that it wouldn't mean anything that doesn't add up to 
you know, several years in somebody's life. You kind of need the endlessness of watching somebody else's home movies is, I mean, that's basically what this is. It's home movies all cut together very artistically. I mean, there is no other structure other than that. So I think it's meant to sort of give you the feeling of no beginning, no end. This is just sort of a piece of my life up on the screen. I appreciated it and I thought a lot of the stuff was very interestingly shot. It did feel a little arbitrary a lot of the time, like why he was spending so little time on some things that looked amazing on screen and, and so much time with boring, rich weddings. But uh, I don't know. I, I think that's sort of its appeal. I guess I, I like I appreciate how he makes a movie, the way that he sort of is fragmenting life into a series of moments and textures and sounds and glances and fingers and eyes and observation. You know what I mean? Like I, I like the way that he breaks things down. There's even, I think there's a humor in his filmmaking that really cuts any sort of pretense. It lets you kind of settle in, you know, with the, this like weird John kill soundtrack that's happening. I mean, like it's there, there doesn't need to be a plot, you know, there doesn't need to be, I think like home movies is, is fine, but I'm, caught between appreciating that and appreciating things in moments and appreciating like you know a, a, a diary of a life lived and the fact that this is like 1969 and all this shit is going down and he is just so above it all you know what I mean like and, <laughs> and it really aggravated me after a while that's the point of the title though this is sort of this this oasis. But it wasn't because it just feels like it's, it just feels like self forced ignorance. It just feels like, it feels like everyone in the sorrow and the pity looking away because they're too big. I mean, like, you know, I'm not really sorry, Janice Mikas, but like, you know, it just feels like he, he just doesn't care. And that like, it's oh, oh, I'm, I'm much more interested in my little life and my little bubble than I am in anything else. And then when, when we end on like John and Yoko doing their bed in, to me, it pissed me off even more, even though I actually like that as an art installation. I thought their little protest, uh, John and Yoko, I think there's merit to it, quite frankly, even though it gets shit on. But in this context, it made me angry because <laughs> it was like, get out of bed, you know, like, what the hell? Like, this is the one time you got political is just so that you can show off that you your buddies with John and Yoko, you know, like, that's what pissed me off. And this just hours of like, circus footage and weddings and all this stuff and like you know oh I'm an experimental filmmaker I must be live my life the most experimental way I can it just like it really got to me and I don't know it might have probably quite frankly had to do with the fact that we watched all of these in a row not even in this order we re reordered them otherwise but uh just watching these all together and sort of seeing the focus of what other people were doing and thinking about, like even that Olympics one, I think to some degree is doing Mikas a bit more better than Mikas is doing himself in this movie. <laughs> like there's mm. more like life and focused attention to appreciating like humanity in that Olympics documentary then I feel like this just felt so navel-gazing in, in comparison. Oh, it tells you right in the title how navel-gazing it's going to be. I know, but <laughs> here's, I mean, like, you know, I gave it like three and a half stars on Letterboxd. I didn't hate this movie, but like I turned on it <laughs> yeah. halfway through it. The other thing that pissed me off is each of these reels seem to have 
some sequence of just like some beautiful young woman posing for the camera. And I was like, oh, that must be his girlfriend. He's in love. But then it would be like a different woman each time. And it really like, I guess a big part of his art is just stopping beautiful women in the park and saying, can I film you for a while? <laughs> and that was starting to irritate me. Because he I like it's very different than the way his male subjects are treated in the film. Yeah, well. But uh, I don't know. So he likes his pretty girls. Well, you know, and I'll even jump off of that and say that that the thing about all of these documentaries to me, I mean, like, and maybe this is also part of what pissed me off about Walden was that it felt very 1969. And it felt, it reminded me, uh, it made me feel like the end of Easy Rider. We blew it. You know, it just, it, it made me feel like, what are you doing, man? Like, what, like, come on, <laughs> wake up. But like, I, I think all of these documentaries together is, is very interesting to look at them because they all are tying in to communication and the lack of. And I think that that's such a 1969 theme, this idea that like, hear me and why am I not being heard? How do I get through to you? Why is this still happening? You know, like confronting things that people don't want to talk about, forcing people into uncomfortable situations and, and falling back in to retreating into comfort. I think that the, it, it's kind of interesting that all of these documentaries are 1000% about that. Maybe. I'd have to think about that a little bit. It seems like you could say that about most movies. That but that's you all we have in The Married Couple. It's all about communication. I mean, like the two of them are, are just so out of step with each other. Salesmen, it's all about using communication to, to make people, you know, manipulate people and, and get them to do the thing that you want. That's how they, their whole lives are, are contingent on this idea that they have to communicate properly or else they don't get what they want. Year of the Pig is, is also, a, you know, this idea that, that we're, we're in Vietnam and it's going poorly because we can't communicate with these people, because we can't actually do the thing that we're being sent to do there, which is to, to change hearts and minds and we can only speak through violence. Sorrow and the Pity is about the fact that we are, are going to backslide into the most horrific shit we've ever done as a human race because of the fact that we'd rather not talk about it then acknowledge what we actually did. And then, you know, the Olympics is, is again, it's all these people from different countries coming together. They can only communicate through this sort of shared bodies, <laughs> intermingling of bodies and, and sweat. And, and, you know, they don't even need words to communicate. And like, here they are all together working as one organism and, and competing against each other. And then diaries, notes, and sketches is all like, you know, one man trying to converse with the world and tell the world about his experience. And I don't know, man. I'm just saying. It did feel like 1969 to me in that it, especially the way that we uh, organized how we talked about them, there is sort of this progression from war to peace. Like the first couple movies we talk about are, you know, more interpersonal war, like a married couple is, uh, you know, we're fighting with each other and the, these salesmen who are like uh, tricking and, and forcing and bullying these uh, these people into buying their Bibles. And then we get a couple of movies that are literally about war on an international scale and how awful people are to each other. But then we sort of get into a little peace and love and with the last couple. We got, you know, all, all these nations getting along in the Olympics and, you know, this coming together and this... Uh, 
pride in, in all of humanity. And then Jonas Mikas just brings it to, you know, very personal, quiet experience, this transcendental experience of, of life, you know, the, the quiet moments and the beauty of, of just ordinary life, you know, away from all that shit. If I see any connection, any way that these movies are connected, I think it's that. Well, this was fun. I, I always enjoy episodes that are based on a year. I think that's that's your most brilliant contribution to the world of movies, and I'm going to give it to you solely. I think Bart invented this way of viewing movies. <laughs> I didn't invent it, but I did perfect it. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.